Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and once again, I'm joined by Tony Farina. We're talking stories. How are you doing, Tony? I'm very well. I'm very, I'm very excited. Yes. Thank you for say, say my name. <laughs> well, I called you, I rang you, and I said, Tony, be my victim. That's what I, said. <laughs> I said, I'm here to be your victim. Yes, yes, I want to be the one to carry your name. It was a lot less... There's a lot less sexual tension between us. You just said do yes. it. And I was like, okay, sure. Yeah, that's fine. We yeah, I mean, we're continuing. Yeah. We've we started with <laughs> we started with machi- cars and now we're getting to carnage. This is uh and folklore and stories. So yeah, we are covering um the Candyman or Candyman from 1991, uh Candyman from 2021, and The Forbidden. The Forbidden. Which is, which is the original short story from Clive Barker in volume five of the Books of Blood. Uh, from 87, I think, 86, 87. And did so, he yes. publish those individually or did he just put it all out as a short story? It was all just... Always volumes. So always got, in volumes. He never yeah. did, He never spread them around. No, these were original. So um, he, a couple of these, some of the shorter ones, I think had been published in magazine. Um, mm. But oh, no, the longer ones, like the novellas and, and a few others, were, no, they're all for the Books of Blood. So this is the first time. Origin- I mean, originally... Hellbound Heart was supposed to be in the Books of Blood, um, but it, but it got a little too long, so he publishes. A he turned that novella. into his own book. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. No, I just didn't know because you know some short, some short story writers, and he's kind of at that stage. I just finished one of our one of our people we just talked about. I just finished Shirley Jackson's mm. biography. Mm. Spoiler alert: the patriarchy sucks. That's all. Um, <laughs> yeah. Boy, yeah. her husband but, was a, her husband was a character. <laughs> yeah what a piece of shit so um that guy he anyway mm. love her though as you know we've already discussed her on the show with the lottery but i was yes. reading her thing and it's just so funny but she was in the last kind of age of writers who could make a living shit selling short stories to magazines mm. like that doesn't happen now. like i've had stuff published you've had stuff published it's like 50 bucks max usually it's just yeah. like hey we published your work here's a free book you're like yeah. cool. cool cool thanks <laughs> thanks for that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exposure. So, yeah, so it's, brilliant yeah, that's what it is but it's interesting though that you know so he right clive is kind of at the tail end of that where he had mm. to just sell it as a collection of shorts that, so i didn't even think about that but i mean he was clearly inspired by those Oh, who came before him? Oh, 100%. Like, you know, uh, if you read sort of like, you know, interviews with Clive Barker, like he goes back, like, you know, he is um, very open about his influences, both literary and, and others. Like, you know, I think he's put his own um, twist on things. I mean, if, mm-hmm. you know, if you do read the books of Blood, and I highly recommend them, I think they're fantastic. Um, yeah, he has a kink. You know, I think he was, he was one of those. He was openly, you know, in the 80s, he was openly gay. He was. Um, you know, he was quite open about sort of like MS, um, S and M and other things like that, and just added it into stories and stuff like that. So they're like the thing is, the books of blood lean on that sort of like they're also the tail end of like the splatterpunk era. Mm. So you've got sort of like you know um, those kinds of books, Sean Houston, James Herbert, um, even a couple of Stephen King, really. But the splatterpunk era, so he sort of there's a lot of gore, but you also get some very in between it, you get some really interesting introspective and sort of kind of deep stories. And that's sort of how I feel about the forbidden. The forbidden is not overly gory. Um, but uh, yeah, before we do it, before we get in, let's, let's just, you know, spoilers yeah. for everyone, by spoilers the way, we're going to be everybody. absolutely, um, 
goes there's no way to talk about these without and especially with the two movies the way that mm-hmm. they're connected yeah i mean right yeah so this is it so the, the the stories are very much sort of interconnected so both the forbidden and the candy man very close actually very good adaptations uh but the story is um helen um different surname but helen a grad student in either chicago or liverpool um starts to investigate a local housing estate and the graffiti on the walls intent on writing a thesis on it and it's sort of its effect on always the how it reflects culture and the people that live there and that sort of thing um and as she digs into it she starts to hear the stories of legend of people being killed on the estate um and how they get attributed to different people but these stories as she picks away she finds she struggles to find evidence of these stories um and then it diff- this is where it starts to diverge somewhat. In uh, in the original source novel or in the original source material, um, the estate has a relationship with the entity known as Candyman, um, and so the uh, the a woman that she has met with a small child sacrifices her child to create the sensational story that can be attributed to the Candyman. Um, and Helen is there and sort of sees the body of the child. She sees the funeral, sees the coffin, but it clearly doesn't have a bit of body in it because then she finds the body in one of the masonettes and is then uh, approached by a unusual figure clad in a colourful patchwork suit with pale, pallid skin, blue lips, red hair, smells of candy floss, um, and he is the Candyman. This is a figure of of story. He only exists because people believe in him. And this baby has been sacrificed to him. In the film, the Candyman is a bit more of an actual figure. Uh, we'll get into it, though. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's more of a figure. And um, he actually sort of takes the baby and attributes it, attributes it to Helen and his intent on killing the baby um, in the, this bonfire. But Helen saves him, and but she dies saving the child. Um, and in doing so, she defeats the Candyman and becomes legend herself. And so it becomes the story. But we'll get into whether or not the figure at the end of Candyman is Helen, or is it just a continuation of the entity? 30 years later, um, an artist... Um, I'm sorry, on... whatever, whatever work he's doing as a visual artist, sign me up. I'm yeah. just saying, as somebody who d- spends a lot of his time doing art, which is writing, um, I'm not, I don't look like that. All I'm saying yeah, is, this is, yeah. I mean, what kind of, what, how heavy are his paintbrushes? Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love He's this like, in films. His um, medium is like, I don't even know. Like they just woke up and they're like, you know what? We're just gonna paint your shirt on because there's no clothes that fit you. The dude <laughs> is just <laughs> no, like, okay. Yeah. Can we just say yeah, artist? Yeah. Sure. Because we were. T- I-, I talked about him. It's it's Yaya Abdul uh, Martin the third, uh, the second, uh, who yeah. uh, who he also appeared in an episode of uh, Black Mirror. And Julian and I talked about mm. him for so at times. And he's excellent in that. And I think he's a fantastic. Guy. He was in the Watchmen series. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's amazing. Great. Oh but, my god, in Watchmen. Yeah. God, he's so great. Yeah, yeah. But he's ripped. Like, the dude is seriously There's a ripped. reason he was yeah. playing who he played. And we <laughs> yeah. don't want to spoil Watchmen no, if no. you haven't seen it. But the character that he plays in Watchmen, you're like, ah. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, when yeah. you do have him as this artist that's sort of like going around, you are a bit like, how did you do? Like, what are you I doing? Know. Like, this is insane. <laughs> so, yeah, I do love that in films. 
But they're like, this is Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's a postman. And you go, no, he's not. Like, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's those, those sacks are really heavy that <laughs> yeah. you carried around. No offense, Paul. Yeah. You are totally ripped. That's how I, Paul, became a postman to, so that he could look too like Arnold Schwarzenegger. One exactly. Day. Yeah. 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 Um, but yes, he is an artist, um, painting thing, and he starts again, sort of, he's trying to look for new work. He comes across the story of Candyman in Cabrini Green, and as he investigates, he gets pulled further and further into it, and eventually finds out that he, spoilers, was the child that was saved by Helen Lyle in uh, 1991. Um, and so, because of the story has to continue, there always must be a Candyman. Um, and then obviously it links with very closely with, with it was very topical. Um, he is killed in a legendary way and comes back from the dead, just like taking out a bunch of policemen and takes on the mantle of the Candyman. Or does he? Let's see. We'll talk. Or does he? Yeah. So that's sort of it. This is the this is the story, and you know, as it says, um, you know, this is the story of Candyman or the story of stories. I'm just going to find the the last line um, from the Forbidden. Yeah. Yeah, so I love that because um, this is a wonderful. I and mean, there's so many quotes. Well, Clive Barker is a wonderful writer. I'm a massive fan of Clive Barker. Um, um, but the story at the end of this, like Helen is trapped in the fire and she's burning, and it just says she watched him quite. This is sort of Trevor as well. Her husband's looking for her, but he can't see her in the fire. She watched him questioning this fire watcher and that, but they shook their heads all the while staring at the pyre with smiles buried in their eyes. Poor dupe, she thought, following his antics. She willed him to look past the flames in hope that he might see her burning, not so that he could save her from the death. She was long past hope of that, but because she pitied him in his bewilderment and wanted to give him, though he would not have thanked her for it, something to be haunted by. That, and a story to tell. And that's what it's all about. This is about urban legend and about having a story to tell and that's sort of what it's cool so let's let's get into it so first i've, I've rambled enough let's get your point no, i love it i'm all listen okay Go. so this is my this is my first time reading the forbidden believe it or not now i've read mm. some clive barker here and there i, I mean i'm not anti-clive barker i know him more from the film side than from the book side um just and it's funny you know because he's he's clive fucking barker but he's just not like because we have stephen king it's kind of one of those things where like we've got Dean Koontz and we've got John Saul. So like there's these American writers mm. who kind of took his place in American culture, which is so it's so he was just one of those guys like he wasn't everywhere. So I read all those guys. I read some Clive Barker, of course, because, you know, I was alive in the mm. 80s, um, but I, I, I hadn't read this before. Um, and so, you know, I always knew it was Clive Barker's. The Candyman, and he's got a writing credit on the film. So, you mm -hmm. know, and he yeah, written yeah. other films, of course, and he loves film. He didn't direct this or anything, but he was obviously highly involved. And there's a character in there who I suspect is supposed to be him. Um, I, love, I mean, I know it's not him. He doesn't play that character. But clearly they were like, let's have this guy be the Clyde Barker character. Yeah. And he's going <laughs> to be as gay and campy as he possibly can and tell the story. And I like that they made that connection to the next one, too, with the brother. So I thought that was... A lovely shout out. Um, anyway, so this is my first time I read it. And all I have to say was, boy, you know who loved this story? Neil Gaiman. Oh, yeah, 100%. He read this and was like, I wonder if I could turn it into a whole novel called American Gods. Yes. Unbelievable. And again, and Neil acknowledges he loves Ty Barker. Neil acknowledges mm. he loves, you know, the people who came before him. You know, Neil Adams. All, you know, he, he's not he's not pretending that he doesn't have people. But good Lord. 
I didn't realize because I hadn't read it before how much of this was the inspiration for for American, American Gods. Gods. So I, yeah. I was, but and again, not in a way, not in a not, rip-off way. Neil no, not a plagiarist way. Yeah, 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 not yeah. at all. So good though, such mm. a good story, and it is such an important thing that the line, like you said, and this is the theme through all three of them. But in the book, I think my favorite part is that you know, I have to exist. Like you, people were starting to forget me and now this happened and now you can remember me. And so that idea of, uh, and, and, and here's the thing too, the commentary that I think, and I ask my students this and I work for a religious school, you know, I teach for a Catholic school or Dominicans. And so they're not like Catholic, like Notre Dame Catholic, like you think of, um, the Dominicans are, they were founded by St. Dominic, but they're nuns. Mostly women are the preachers. And it's a different thing. Like women actually lead the service and, you know, the Vatican isn't a big fan. You'll be shocked to say, as we were talking about the patriarchy, live and well in the Catholic church. So <laughs> um, all of that to say, um, that idea of, I, so I bring this up in my classes all the time that like, why are you like, you know, there's a lot of Catholics and Christians and that's fine, of course, mm. and I, but why is why is your religion real and why is zeus a myth and why is hercules a myth when hercules and jesus have a very similar story hmm, they look they look a lot alike <laughs> and lou ferrigno could play them both lou ferrigno never played jesus but he could have um he definitely played hercules in those canon he movies. Yeah. oh my god all the grease i think they <laughs> ran out of oil there was an yeah. oil the reason there was a gas crisis in the 70s is because they poured all the oil out of Lou frigno in those in those movies and he looked um, wonderful doing it so he did <laughs> good, good lord i'm sure that was all like fuck you schwarzenegger look at me i mean that was their their rivalry it, mm. it goes on forever but um so i really love this idea of and i feel like he's having that commentary too like well what makes zeus a myth and what makes loki a myth when you are saying this religion is is real and like when you think about you know you know like islam didn't exist until one day it did and now yeah. there's the, it, there's more muslims in the world than any other religion but it like it's relatively young air quotes young for a religion for an organized religion that is the most the most the biggest religion mm. in the world like it's the more 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 muslims than Hindus, more Muslims than than Confucianists. I mean, and that's like, you know, there's a lot of Chinese people, but I'm telling you, more Muslims. So it's amazing to think like the oldest religion, one of the oldest religions, Confucianism and Buddhism, there's fewer of them than there are there. So there's the interesting idea of, but people don't think of Buddha as a myth for some, because there's still people who believe in that. And Hinduism, yes. even though that's still multi, um, it's still polytheistic, but there's Hindus still. There's practicing Hindus. George Harrison was a Hindu. They're like, oh, mm. well, if, if a beetle is a Hindu, those gods must be real still. Nobody says, oh, George, you believe in myths. But if George Harrison – and that's the thing. If George Harrison had said, I'm going to worship to Zeus, people would have been like, yeah, that's Zeus. But it's, so it's just an interesting conversation of what we choose to be real. And so I just think it's such a smart way to do it. And the fact that he wraps it inside this tense piece of horror because horror is myth. Horror yeah. is legend, but it's also real if you want it to be real. Um, so I just think it's this, it's so layered and smart, and it's just a really great commentary on, and again, as a as an out gay man in the 80s who was being ostracized for being a person, I'm sure he was also commenting on like, well, your God is equally bullshit. Oh, he's an atheist. Like, yeah, for, right. Oh, yeah, like, there, was, there was no doubt. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Barker is clearly an atheist. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, no, I, I love what you're saying. Like this thing, like I say, this belief, this myth, and how this these ideas can take um, 
you know, like a hyperstition. Like, you know, these things that are believed in enough become a reality. Like, you know, we've seen it. Like, you know, all of a sudden things materialize just through will of things just happen through the will of people. Like actions are taken. All of a sudden, like, you know, a religion is born or, or QAnon. You know, for QAnon, exactly. Like, yeah, QAnon is born out of a hyperstition. Like, enough people believe these things that all of a sudden it's a, you know, it becomes a reality to some people. Um, one of the things I find fascinating about this book as well is the the um, the locale, and not just the fact it's in Liverpool, mm. like Spectre Street, this estate. It's the fact that basically what they have taken, or what he has taken, and that, well, we're referring to Shirley Jackson again, is folklore, is right. rural folklore, and placed into an urban environment. So he sort of said, like, he's basically what was a village once of superstitious mm-hmm. people is now a. Uh, housing estate of superstitious people like that's how these people you know he's not because at no point does he say they're stupid or that you know they're ignorant or that but he says like no this is just how people work this is human nature like you get a group of people together myths begin to grow like legend and rumor and all this other stuff um and obviously and it becomes and you will do anything for it it's like the line that belloc says in the original raiders right he's like it's just a pocket watch i paid ten dollars for it. we bear it in the sand and in a thousand years men like you and me will kill each other for it yeah but it's just a watch man yeah like, somebody decided you guys travel you guys travel through the twilight zone the one where the guys they travel into the future and they've saved all this gold and then everybody mm-hmm. discovers that they find out that it's worthless and it was yeah. always worthless yeah it's 100%. always just it's worth it has value because we say it does I, I find that I'm more in a position. I'm, I'm in this position more and more now, where I sort of like I see the inequality in the world in you know between the genders, between people's different you know between minorities, between sort of how the refugees are treated, between you know, the poverty gap and all this sort of like pay gap, wealth gap, whatever. Property being held by from people, and I sort of like think, how weird is it that we as a, as a race, we as a species, right, as human beings. Will this crap into existence? And now we just go, well, that's just the way it is. And you go, no, it's not, because it's we. It's a fabrication. Like money yeah. is money's point is is meaningless unless we give it value. Um, you know, social status is rubbish, and until you give it value, like you know, without being like a prime minister or a king or a president or the pope is no more important than any other one person, unless you give them that input. And yeah. so just at the moment, I've just got to this point where I was, I was literally just sat with my head on the table earlier on, like with my head in my hands. So I was like, <laughs> man, I'm really sort of having this existential crisis. And I think it's this and the research I'm doing for something else around hell, which has really driven me to be like, yeah, no, we we fabricated all this. And it's a nonsense. It is. Um, it's all true. There's a great book. The guy's Antul Harari is his name. He's a historian and anthropologist. And the book is called Sapiens. Mm. And it is really good, and he's a, so he's a historian who's writing a book of anthropology and sociology, and it's really fascinating. And essentially, that's his. It's like his thing is, is like, you know why it's a mile? Cause yeah, you know yeah. why it's a dollar? Cause yeah. you know why it's a god? Cause yeah, you know why these words exist? Like he's even like he gets super meta. Like these words that you're hearing, these are fiction. Yeah, it's just we, we've we, decided these words mean what they mean. Well, they're not even so words. It's a great. noise. Yeah. That's the point. Right. It's a noise. We've attributed a noise. Because this is what this is the same. Because I'll go to you know you will travel to you know another part of the world or you know you travel somewhere. The most extreme would be China, Japan, or an yeah. Arab country, somewhere where the language is in, in the, and the the alphabet is incredibly different. Right. And you'll, yeah, you it's can, not even like you can't like you know like 
even but, if you don't speak Spanish, some of the words are the same. Even if you, you don't speak German, you're like, oh, I get what you're saying. But yeah, exactly. You speak Korean. You're like, I've got no clue. This is alien. alien. Yeah, yeah, right. This yeah, is yeah. completely out. And of they world. feel the same. They're like, a hundred percent letters. Yeah. How are you getting away with that? Right. Yeah. And they go like, <laughs> yeah. well, I can't understand yours. And you go, what? Well, how? I know what these noises mean. Yeah. And you go, well, but I don't know what your noises mean. So, right. um, yeah, it all is a fabrication. But this, yeah. and that's what I love about this story is because this is something that's just been given meaning. Mm-hmm. Um and, and and it has this mythology that seems to have grown about it on this estate. Um and I love the fact it's not actually attributed to anything. Like he has but he clearly like there'll be kids on the estate. Like Helen never actually talks to any kids that say, like, oh, Candyman looks like this. Or, you know, they right. but it's quite clear that he's used as a sort of a you know, well, if you don't eat your dinner, the boogie yeah, he's a boogeyman. Yeah, he's a boogeyman. Um, and so I love all that sort of kind of thing, how it's sort of like on just on this localized estate, like this one estate. Um, but the murders as well, like only only one person actually dies in this story. Right. A child, which is, you know, quite horrific. When you sort of, yeah. When you start to fit, when it sort of lays out the, the, the events, the logistics of it. But there's these two of the stories. Um and one of my favorite, and they, they re re sort of purpose them for the film, but and it's one of my favorite scenes in the film as well. But there's a scene in this where Helen, who has been told that there was a uh, by, um, okay, is it not Ruthie? Is it Ruthie? G? I forget the name of the person she meets. Yeah, on... yeah, Ruthie. Yeah. G, yeah. That's her name in the in the, in the movie. Book. Yeah, Ruth, Ruthie. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. she gets told this story about a man. You know, but in in the in the film, it's a woman next door who was killed with a hook. But in the, right. in the in the book, it's uh, a guy who was killed in his apartment. His eyes were gouged out, and he was left there for several weeks or whatever. Until the right, and, they, and the smell, they, they, yeah, 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 right. So it's sort of it the a same dog, sort of thing. But yeah, yeah, right. A similar thing, but you know, it's slightly repurposed. But then she goes, she starts looking into this because she can't find anything in the news. And then she goes, she goes to like a shopping area and bumps into these two women, and she's like, "Oh, there was a murder on this day." And then they tell a completely different story. But they're like, oh, yeah, there was this other story about, in this case, a sort of, um, a, you know, a, a, I think it's a 20-year-old who has, suffers from learning difficulties and is being teased and is attacked in the public toilets and has his genitals cut That off. scene shows over. I mean, that, uh, that, that yeah. and that, like, they merged that. Really, It is amazing how much they lifted. And I know because yeah. Clive wrote the screenplay, but they knew exactly what was important. And that is important. The bathroom... Yes. There's that sense of ominous, the fact that your lead character is a woman and that these are women telling the story, but it happens in a men's room. And it adds to the layer of unbelievability and like myth because they weren't there. They didn't see it. They weren't in the men's room when it happened. It wasn't like a, you know, a gender neutral toilet. It was a men's room. Mm. Like, well, you weren't there, but that's the story. We know what happened. And they were like, they were there. You weren't there. You have no idea. You never saw it happen. Yeah, and no one's yeah. ever, no one saw it happen. It was a friend of a friend of a friend, was sort of like you know, my cousin Jeff's best friend's postman saw it, sort of thing. Right. Um, <laughs> right. But I love the fact that that's story. But I love the way it's these two old, these two middle aged women, and in the in the film, it's the two cleaners. So yeah, uh, at her I, college, at the college, at the and they, yeah, 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 and they, yeah, and they tell a similar story. Uh, and I love the fact that this is just these two. Um, there's just this, you know, they're just comfortable telling the story, but they they carry it with a bit of like, you know. We don't. We what we're going to tell you, but you know we don't really want to talk about this. Yeah. Um, and then because she talks about Candyman, and one of the women start. Well, in the film, one of the women says about Candyman. The other one says, "What? Oh, 
We didn't say his name. Right. And you don't want to say his name. And it's funny, too, that that's it, though. The other thing that I love about it in the book and this transfer translates beautifully into both films is they say they don't want to talk about it, but they do. Oh, 100 percent. They just want to be asked. They don't want to. They're like, I don't know. But and they were just like, like, because in the in the film version and in this, it's like she doesn't know these people. Mm. Not like Helen's like hanging out and it is a friend of a friend. It's like these are strangers, but she hears them talking and they hear a thing and they're just like, so you want to talk about it? And this is the cue. It's the cue thing, right? It's like, yes, it because the people are desperate to talk about the bullshit and they want to spread the bullshit and they want to play the telephone game. And it's that scene in uh, my, one of the favorite visual examples of the of the telephone game is in Johnny Dangerously. I don't know if you ever saw Johnny Dangerously mm-hmm. with uh, Michael Pitt. Keaton. Oh, yeah, Michael no, Keaton. Keaton. Michael Keaton. Yeah, yeah. No, that's Johnny Swade you're thinking of with, yeah, with yeah. Brad Pitt. Yeah, no, no, Johnny Dangerously where he, it's Mike, young Michael Keaton. The, and uh, yeah. the, the thing goes down the line. And by the time it gets to the end, he says the thing they said first. And the guy who he said it to, he's like, I didn't say that. He's like, I know this telephone. And that was like, just the, that was just the, like, cause that mm. is how it is. You know, like that's the game. You say you it. Add to about it. it. You, you add to the story. This, Cause that's, you know. we add, because what goes back to what you said, it's all about story. And it's about like, wanting to be the person who tells the story. And so, you know, whatever story you tell. Yes. The next person is going to embellish it or add to it or remember it differently. Like if somebody's going to, you know, like, read your story or read my book or, or whatever, read one of our essays and they're not going to get it quite right. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be like, Oh yeah, no, no. Right. This is the thing he said in that essay about judge dread. You're like close, yeah. but that's what you remembered. And that's your version of it. And then, you know, it's like, that's why it's important to check the source material, which is interesting in this day and age. And as you said, the 2021 is so much more on the nose, but even, yeah. you know, because of the disinformation age in which we live, but this idea that Helen in both cases as a researcher wants to find the truth. She yeah. really well, is trying to find answers. It's the truth. This is the thing. And in all of these, in both the first one and in the, in, the, in, the, in the book and the first Candyman film, the reason Candyman comes, he says about, um, you doubted me. Right. Yeah. So the truth, truth is his enemy. That's the thing. The more she digs into the truth, looking at old, you know, old newsreels and microfilm and all this other stuff, like looking for those killings or looking for, um, you know, who is who is the Candyman or like. And the same with Helen. He has to. He says, you know, you doubted me, so I was obliged to come. I was obliged to come. Yeah, and it's that thing again, like you know, I had to prove myself. Like I'm, I've now got to like every couple of every couple of decades, every couple of years, I will. I gotta pop back up. I gotta pop up and do some, like, you know, like, like Pennywise in it. You know, every thirty <laughs> years, like, you know, every thirty years, something happens and builds this myth around uh, uh, Derry as well. Um, I, I just yeah, and they pop up in. Um, did you read the the one about uh, this November? 1963, the one about um, the assassination of JFK. No. There, those kids, the kids, he he travels through time into Derry, free it. Oh, it, yes. And so they're there, ah. reading, like singing about Pennywise, like before he's even there. It's such a fascinating thing. It's like he pops oh. up. They're barely in it, and and my wife who had not read it, and mm. I hate clowns, but you know, like I read that that didn't mm-hmm, help. But mm-hmm. um, 
but anyway, she didn't get who those kids were. And she was like, oh, they were interesting. You know, they were like Chris Farley and Wayne's World. Boy, that was useful information that those two kids had. And I was like, oh, those are those kids from yeah. there. So it's <laughs> funny. But even then, even Stephen King with his shared universe, right? Yeah. And I think that is also, I thought of that too, when I was when we read and watch and watch, that it is this interesting shared universe and that there's even between one and two, the the book and the, the and as we're talking about adaptation and story, it is still just a shared universe. Like you said, it mm. takes a turn because in this, she's actually in the book, she's just talking about graffiti. But in the yes. film, it's specifically about urban legends. But yes. this is acknowledging the graffiti is part of the urban legend. It's elite, and so it's there. It's a little more on the nose in the one, but it's still this idea of it's it's shared. It's the shared yeah. universe of. Of it is the telephone game of story, and I just yeah. love it. Yeah, and that, that's what's so good about. It. I mean, this thing, like you say, the, the urban because about the urban decay as well. I mean, one of yeah. the things. Oh, I, yeah, yeah. I want to get to. I'm going to talk about the. Um, is this from an anthropo- anthropological lens as well? But I wanted to just read this because um, this is my fa- one of my favorite lines. Is that be my victim? Mm. So she's obviously. This is where Helen's gone in. She's confronted by the Candyman, and he sort of said. So he's he's basically sort of. I was obliged to come and see you. Know you. Um, you know, I live in people's dreams. I am the rumor. Da, da, da. But he offers her, he says, be my victim. No, she murmured. I won't force it upon you, he replied. The perfect gentleman. I won't oblige you to die, but think, think. If I kill you here, if I unhook you, he traced the path of the promised wound with this hook. It ran from groin to neck. Think how you would they would mark this place with their talk. Point it out as they pass by and say, she died there. The woman with the green eyes. And that's it, isn't it? That myth, that thing of sort of like, she then becomes a part of the story, a part of the myth, the immortality of, of the immortality of story. And I, I love that, that, that sort of confrontation. Like he's not, um, he's not aggressive. He's just saying that, look, this is how I live. I'm immortal. Like, you know, yeah, I'll get weak, but every now and then I'm after, I have to oblige with a killing, but I'll live forever. Um, and, and he what, wants her to. And I do. It yeah. is true that the victims are often remembered, you know, infamously. Um, and and that's not necessarily what you want to be known for. Yeah. You don't yeah. want to be remembered as a victim. But that's what's brilliant about what the Candyman asks. Mm. He does the murders, but he picks people to say be my victim. It's different. It's not the same. Like if, you, if the dumb girls and the movies or the boys are all these dumbasses who just say Candyman five times in the mirror, don't do that. That's yeah. on you. You, but you did technically call him. Yeah. So it looks like he's committing a mass murder, but you asked him to come because you knew what would happen. It said, if you do it, Candyman will show up behind you and he will kill you. And you're like, oh, I'm going to do that. You're like, yeah. no, no, don't. But so there is this weird, interesting conversation about consent in all of this. Cause he, with Helen, he at no point in time, he doesn't do anything to Helen that she doesn't allow to have happen. Yes. It's such, it's so fascinating. And he just keeps, but he wears her down. It's not like he's not an abuser or a serial killer. Mm. He is. But, um, and I have to say too, that as we, I, we definitely need to talk about this stuff you were saying. I do think that the the story of him being called the Candyman in the book makes, makes way more sense than in the movie. Yeah. Just for just for the record, like this is he's literally a Candyman. Well, the, what's funny is about the book, and we'll get that because I want to obviously you've got yeah. to compare the Candyman to the Robert 
um and no, Daniel Robotai, the yeah, Tony, yeah. the Tony Todd version. They have to sort of like they clearly get to a point in the film where they're like, We've got to give him a reason as to why he's called Candyman. Yeah. So we're gonna have to give good, him, we're gonna have bees. to yeah, we're gonna have to yeah. introduce honey and all this other stuff, and you're a bit like, okay, it's not the best, but it was an origin, <laughs> but it, but it's still a story. It's still a story. It is still works. a story, and the bees, the bees show up. I mean, the bees are there. Mm. Oh yeah, they're in the, you know, they're yeah. in the novel, but they make yeah. way more sense in the story. Yes, um, one of the things I just wanted to yeah. just point out um, before, because there is this anthropology. Yeah, because we'll we'll shift into the film as well in a minute. Yeah. Is before we do, we've talked about this idea of story and about this idea. You said American gods. There's two of the characters that really, when I was reading it this time round, sort of jumped out at me. I was thinking, oh, this has really sort of come, for, you know, other characters. The first one is the idea of Kaiser Soze in Usual Ooh, Suspects. Nice. That is all about story. Making shit up. Yeah, making yeah. Making shit up. Like, you know, and, you know, um, leaving someone alive or like, and it even gets called out in the film, I think, at one point, where they're like, he killed all these people and their families and their dogs. And they're like, cool. Who told you? Because they're all dead. <laughs> Like, Who told you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but the other one that's interesting is Freddy Krueger. Oh, so Freddy, yeah, well, well, no, not so much the claws, but Freddy Krueger came to mind for two reasons, for, for the main reason being in the later films, um, so mainly um, Freddy versus Jason. Movie is so bad. I love that in film. In all the right ways. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. But the reason he ends up sending Jason Voorhees on a killing spree is so that he can then take credit for the killing so people remember Freddy Krueger and he can come back. That's the whole thing. And that feels very Candyman. But also, the other version of this that I love is the very meta uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, where mm. it's almost the opposite, where he's sort of like, oh, no, we didn't create a demon from a story. We trapped a demon in a story. Um. And again, so this idea... That's a good of, point. Yeah. I really like that idea as well, that, like, no, believing in Freddy or being scared of Freddy, him being the boogeyman, captured this demon in this moment, in this zeitgeist in the 80s and 90s. But as it sort of fell off, which I think, like, Wes Craven's clearly making a commentary on the shittier ends of the films, where he's a bit like, yeah, the last two were, like, not great, so... And it's like, remember really... how you turned Freddy into, like, you were selling action figures of him and he's making jokes? Remember how he's a pedophile yeah. serial killer? Remember <laughs> yeah. how this is bad? Do you remember, you, you, the irony of all this is, you know you, like, kids can buy Freddy Krueger costumes? Yeah, that's right. so weird. But... You are missing the point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like, why don't you... Now those are the same people who dress their kid up as Homelander. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's the 100%. same point that they're missing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh look, yeah. One <laughs> of them, we've got two boys, Brad and Brad and Zach. One's going as uh, Rorschach, and one's going as Homelander. And you're all right, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, well, you really missed the point of both yeah, of those. Yeah, you are you? not <laughs> hanging out with my kids. That's yeah. Not... <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. yeah. But let's let, let's move because I think we do transition to the film. Um, well, I think this goes to and this as we make the transition because you brought up the whole point of like the urban decay mm. and this <clears throat> idea of class. Mm. And I know in the film, yes. it's obviously much more race. And I'm not familiar with that part of Liverpool, obviously. So I don't know. It doesn't come across as a race thing in the book. It's, it's much not. more of a it's, class thing. It is most definitely a class thing. That, oh, that's what I was going to say, the anthropological yeah. end. You're totally right. Yeah. Yes, there is this element of, and I think, because Helen acts as the middle class in both the film yeah. and the book. She's that middle class lens into poverty-stricken areas. So, yeah, we don't have the race sort of division in the, in the UK as much as states but there's definitely i mean you know you could definitely see it through that but there's more about the poverty and the working class and the housing state and also don't forget this is rewritten during thatcher's britain this is during thatcher's reign 
So there's very much this idea of of resentment towards you know from the working class towards the government about you know selling off council houses and we've already gone through the miners' strikes and all sorts of things. And Clive Barker comes from a working class family, so that that resentment is very strong. Um, but yes, well, most I... of your artists in the eighties, the ones that we like anyway, we're oh, not yeah. a big fan of Thatcher for some reason. Yeah. Wonder what's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. She's responsible. She it's one of those things when you sort of say that. What did what's that you're good for? Well <laughs> she did give us V for Vendetta. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> um but then again, as they translate it to the film, yes, it becomes about sort of like you know, Cabrini Green becomes like the ghetto, isn't it? It's sort of poverty, but race is most definitely in there. You've had like the whites, what's it called? Um there was but, the white the gentrification. The gentrification, yeah, but it was more a case of uh, you know, originally obviously like all the what's it called, the white. White flight. White flight. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. I get like, what you're saying. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the it, it, third it, one is more about gentrification. Yeah. Yeah. But this yeah, one definitely touches is, on that white flight sort of is in and this And it's film. real. And the fu- interesting thing, not funny, but the interesting thing. So my dad is from Chicago. And so mm. like, you know, part of their white flight, my, my you know, racist Italian grandparents was to leave Chicago and move to the other side of the lake, go to where they went to Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad went to high school in Benton Harbor, which is, you know, very African-American area of, of Michigan now. And at the time it wasn't, but they were also then, so they moved from Chicago as part of this whole bullshitty white flight. And they wanted to raise their kids in a blah, 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 whatever. <laughs> um, but then what that actually then happened in Benton Harbor too, as, as the, as the, you know, as Michigan expanded and we mm-hmm. had cars and we had all this stuff. And so folks of all races are now making money. And so they're moving into these nice homes and then than St. Joe. And it's still really stark between St. Joe and Benton Harbor, but it's just such an interesting, um, it, it's just such an interesting commentary that my, my parent, my dad was, my, my mom's from Michigan, but my dad was from Chicago and then moved to Michigan as part of this white flight thing. Cause like Cabrini Green was, I, when I saw this movie 92, so I was, I just graduated from high school. I graduated from high school in 91. So I saw this, you know, actually in my hometown, I didn't see it in the theater, but we saw it on VHS. Like that one summer I went home after college. So it was the summer of 92. And I remember watching this in my parents' house. My dad was there talking about Cabrini. Like I'd always heard all these horrible legends about Cabrini. Cabrini. You can't go there. And it's, you know, it's like a demilitarized zone. And one mile later is the miracle mile. And there's this whole thing. And it's, it, it, it yes, it wasn't great, but it wasn't that. And there's a line mm. in this movie that he could have written when, when she and Bernadette are going there and they're all getting stressed out about whatever. She's like, you're getting this freaked out for going eight blocks. Yeah. You know, and so that, but that says everything about it. And I thought it was really smart to cast a woman of color as Bernadette to, mm-hmm. to so that they could, because then that was the love letter back to the book that it was class as much as it was race. Yes. Yeah. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think what I would say, yeah, I think, this, I mean, this is one of my favorite movies. I love Candyman. I think it's a fantastic film. It's got so much going for it, as you know. But you're right. I think, the, I also think that the casting of, of uh, Virginia Madison. Uh, as Helen is perfect because she is like, um, she's she's it's got to say, like, she's almost like the English, she's an American like English roach, like she is that sort of like you know, the sort of like the waspish kind of like, um, she's very attractive, you know, sort of like in the very green eyes, not sort of stuff like the blonde hair, like she is. I'm not saying Arian, but she's you know, you couldn't get much more Caucasian <laughs> than Virginia Madison, like, right. 
Um, and so to play, Kate Capshaw th- wasn't available, so they got Virginia Madsen. Yeah, it's that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm grateful she wasn't available <laughs> for sure. No, and I don't know that that's true. I'm just no, no, saying no, no, no. that. No, no, Virginia but, Madsen was the choice, 100. Yeah. Yeah. And she, I think she's fantastic in this, and I think she's a great choice because of that. Because she does, she seems so academic, and obviously this has that academic mm. lens. Um, and so you know, and they, I love that, like you know, Bernard Rose who directs this chooses routinely to sort of there are scenes. Um, that are films completely normal. This is, you know, I've got like a 4K version of this, and it sort of it looks crisp, crisp, beautiful. But then you'll have like a soft focus on Helen. Mm, really? Or, yeah. Nice. Or it'll have a bit, and it'll sort of like you know that sort of like um, the thing that you used to get in the noir films, where sort of like there'd be the shadow, but her eyes are still sort of like you know. Oh yeah, yeah. Lit and that sort of thing, and you get those sort of things. And I'm just like. Yeah, they keep giving this the focus on the eyes and sort of like she's putting a soft focus to get, you know, sort of like there's that little bit throughout to give her almost like, oh, you are part of this story. This is a fairy tale and you are part of it. Like, you know, she's That's such a good point. She's yeah. separate from everybody else. She's sort of part of this thing. And I, I, I kind of love that. Yeah, because her husband, Trevor, is mm. the same name. He's a big douche. Yes. And she's and, you know, and she calls him out. And I do. And and again, like as an academic who kind of is, you know, like I'm not ready for the fight club or anything, but I'm kind of (laughs) doughy. And it's like to look at Virginia Madsen and be like, see, this is it. And then you get to the other movie where the guy's called Anthony. And I'm like, what kind of art are you into? (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's just funny. It's also an interesting conversation on what uh, what attractive can look like. In mm-hmm. 1987, mm-hmm. as a, or 1992, and in 2021, you're like, because everybody is like, do you know any ugly people in Candyman 2021? And you're like, oh, yeah. these are just normal looking people. Yeah. You know, like, oh, yeah. you're just some normal. You know, have the, everybody just a, looks regular. Yeah, there's, like, a, wow. there's, a, there's a dinner scene in it, and it's like, wow, this is a bunch of like seriously attractive people at a table here. This yeah. is <laughs> statistically speaking, this is not possible. This is I don't got the, in the 2021 version. I'm like yeah. really, and it's like the the one movie, the one western that they made not long ago that um that had uh, a Regina Regina King in it, and uh, oh uh, yeah, um, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me, yeah. Idris Elba, like everything about it. It's like every movie. I like, I'm like, listen, I've seen Westerns before. Can someone be ugly? And this, <laughs> yeah. you're like, and then Zazie Beach shows up. Zazie you're like, I guess not. <laughs> yeah. I guess everybody yeah. in this yeah. part of the this West. Is the, is this is the cleanest, sexiest Western I've ever watched. <laughs> ever. I mean, everybody who keeps showing up, you're like, even a bit part, you're like, can there just be one normal looking person in this movie? No, everybody. Jonathan Majors, you're like, good God. Yeah, just get one uggo, and that's what. So it's just funny to look at the 1987 because nobody's like disgusting. You're just like, oh, look at normal people. Well, normal is, yeah. people. So is it what... is a good casting because Xander Berkeley, like yeah. I said, Xander Berkeley, who plays her Trevor, her husband. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's one of his actors has been around for years. He's, he appears in so many things, but like he's yeah, he's just a normal guy. Like he's just yeah. a normal dude. <laughs> And you just yeah. like, cool. but so, but because it does, because I do you think too. This is all of that to say the casting then of Tony. Yeah, who is so iconic and he's so and and that's why it works that just like you just cast these bunch of normals and then when he finally shows up and that voice and that he's so powerful and he's so big and he's just imposing yeah but like yeah and classy as fuck and he like looks cool in that coat and you're just like it so it's great casting because he you know, he is. If you if you cast him first, you're like, okay, we got to have somebody who's just gonna be such a stark thing. And like, you're right, what you said about, and I didn't think about it. How like, he's the prince, she's the princess in the fairy yeah. tale, right? It's so good. That's great. 
Yeah. I love that. And even at the end, that bears fruit. Well, it's all, but yeah, because this, and this is where this is one of the only issues I have with this film. Um, it's not so much an issue, it's a nitpick, let's say, because I think it's so good. But it's more about the translation and, and sort of this idea of adaptation. And it, may, it got worse in the sequels. Like, you know, I'll, I'll mention two, I won't, I won't mention three because three is one of the worst films, but two sort of continues this idea. But this idea in Candyman, the, the, the difference between Candyman in the, the novel, in The Forbidden, is a non human, I don't know, let's not say, let's say God, he's a myth entity. That's all he is, like Pan or whatever. He's been brought into existence. Yeah, he's manifested. He's a hyperstition. Like he only exists because he is believed in. Um, obviously, you you got to translate that to film. And if you were to literally translate the figure of Candyman as described in the book to film, like it would be ridiculous. I don't. It wouldn't work. And I think even Clive Barker has acknowledged that the the, the change made complete sense. So they, you obviously have Tony Todd, and so you've got this sort of Tony Todd, and he obviously then goes into the race thing. So they, they then go back and they give him a backstory, and you they don't name him in this uh, in this one. They don't name him in in Candyman two. He gets named in the sequel. Um, but he is this story. There's this story of an artist linking through to the next film. There's a story of an artist who falls in love with a woman, a white woman, and the father gets angry and. Um, He's actually basically hunted down and, and execute. His arms cut off. Honey's pulled over and bees sting him to death. Um, and it then Candyman. It and, doesn't yeah, exactly. work. The name no. just doesn't work. But well, a boy says it, doesn't he? Like you say, like a little boy picks up the honey, the honeycomb, and starts saying candy. They, they wow. even they literally film it and show it in the next film, and it is awful. It, you do go, oh, oh no, like, it doesn't work. I don't, I don't. I think I've seen two and three, but like I didn't revisit them for this. I, they didn't. I know Tony's in the second one. Is he in the third he's, one? He's too? in the third one. Like you can wow, tell, he it's, was... like, it's it's contractually obliged because he what you can tell he doesn't want to be in it. Um, oh, um, <laughs> that's the name of it. Candyman three contractually obliged. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, but what's interesting is they do give. This is the thing we do have. We've talked about being story, but there is no mention of an origin for Candyman in the first in the book. But in this film, right. we have one, and. Um, I because we'll talk about those when they get to the third film, but this idea that Candyman has uh, an origin oh, it's this thing, it's this is a legend, he's the hook handed man that haunts Cabrini Green. This is where he was executed. Like in this film, that doesn't matter, it's a story. Mm-hmm. He, he looks like Tony Todd because there's a mural that looks like Tony Todd, and people right. have seen it and gone. That's what Candyman looks like. So that's what he looks like. Right, exactly. He couldn't look anything. Like he could look like, you know, he doesn't have an actual physical like, representation. He is represented by what people think he looks like. Uh, the long coat, the hook, all of that is his hyperstition, his manifestation. So I love that in this film. And the more that, because it, when they go to that meal, um, the, the the like say the Clive Barkery kind the of. The Clive Barker guy. What was his name in this? Um, it's Michael Culkin plays Purcell. Purcell. Yeah, yeah. Who's mentioned in the who appears in the novel in just the same way as well? Yeah, right. Yes, exact, almost exactly the same way. Yeah. Yes, and yeah, he yeah. says he says, "Oh, you've been to Cabrini Green. That's Candyman country." And he's, he's yeah, there. Yeah. He's there to sort of like show, well, you're not covering new territory. And he tells the story um, of this uh, this this artist who is later uh, called Daniel Robitaille. Um, and so throughout the film, I'm just like, that's the story that's been told. Mm. You know, that's it. Like, and much like in the book, if if um, Helen had been killed by Candyman, 
in that masonette, there would have just been, oh, that's the story of this ghost or this this hyperstition, this being now. Look, it was a blonde woman who was gutted. And so the thing that people would see would be a blonde woman covered in blood, probably carrying her own insides or something like that. That that would be the story that would be people have seen this thing walking the street. She'd streets. be the ghost walking on the moors. The, yeah, yeah. yeah La, La, La Llorona, that kind of thing. Oh, the La Llorona. Oh, this woman, she drowned her own children in a fit of in a fit of depression and now mourns them and, and weeps in the street for them. So people hear this cry in the night and all this other stuff. Like it's a hyper, it's, it's a manifestation. These stories exist in reality. So I love all this idea. And like you said, to have Tony Todd's, you know, fucking amazing voice. <laughs> so good. But there's, it sort of blurs the line then because when you finally meet him and he starts to kill people, um, the, the, the nitpick I have is he, he does kill people. Right. Who didn't invite him. Who didn't invite him. So he kills like the doctor and he kills like, he's basically, he is building Helen's, story right for her for her like he kills the doctor but there's a few things where i'm like like you know so he how did she manage to like kill someone with a hook from behind like in a seat like there's a couple of things like that where i'm like oh okay it's it's going to be a an odd story but um it's the end piece so i want to this is the question i want to get on to this one right? yeah we get to this because there's this is this is my theory okay so the end of the film is um, the woman's baby is taken. Helen is is accused of it, and she believes it because she's cut the head off a a Rottweiler as well. Yeah, amazing. I love that scene because it's retold because it's retold in the twenty one version as well. And she's right. doing snow right. angels in the blood, and it's awesome. I and his retelling, the brother's retelling of it is exceptional. That yeah. actor is so good. Yeah. Um, so she, she yes, then when she finds the child, she's able to save the child, and the child obviously appears in the in the pyre in the bonfire. Um and that oh that's something I might have forgot to mention, which we'll get back to. So they've got this pyre, they're gonna set this bonfire, and she saves the child and is then burnt, and she dies in the fire. And we see like the bees all come out on fire, and Candyman burns, and people see Candyman burning in the fire. So Candyman is defeated. Right. So at the end of the film, you've, you, you, we'll talk about the uh, you know the Bloody Mary kind of a thing. So at the end of it, Trevor sort of goes like Helen, 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 Helen says Helen five times, and she appears. Love, love though. Love oh, it's it. wonderful. It's, it looks great, and you know it's sort of like she's now she's now carrying the hook, right? Question. Because there is no there is no ghost in this. Like the, the second film is a ghost story, right? But this isn't. This is a this is a manifestation. This is a, a, right. an entity from. That's not the ghost of Helen Lyle. That's still the entity that was Candyman. Correct. It, it now just physically manifested as Helen. It, yes, 100%. Yeah. Right, I'm so glad you agree with me on that. Because there are other people 100%. that are like, yeah. no, it's the ghost of Helen. I'm like, there are no ghosts in this story. No, 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 no. It's, it's, they, they he says it repeatedly. Like, I, he says the same lines. Yeah. I'm here because you believe in me and I need you to believe in me, Helen. I need you. I, I need you to want, you need to say my name. You need to be my victim so that by being my victim and this, I will tell you, this is the moment. 
and I've been looking for it. And I guess now that we're talking about it, it makes sense. I wish I had thought of this before. Right now, live, this is happening. People, <laughs> this explains the whole Emperor strike me down and replace me bullshit at the end of Jedi. Because you're like, what is happening? Why do you need to kill? Why do you want me to kill you so that I can be you? But this is it. It does come from this idea that you've got to be the baddest. You've got to be the one who can kill. The only way you can take my place is to kill me because that is what it takes. And so it's the opposite here. It's you have to be willing to be killed to take my place. It's, it's yes. an, you have to, And he, if you don't accept it, Helen, I'm stuck to be the candy man forever. It's going to look like me. It's going to be my body. I'm not going to pass on or whatever. Cause it's the manifestation is going to always look like me. So no, it's not a ghost. It's, it's, it's whatever you want to say. If you want to say it's evil incarnate, whatever you think it is, this manifestation, this right, right now in America, it's Q. Okay. Yeah. So Q is the thing. But like before Q, there's always been something that everybody believes. There's always some crazy bullshit consp- conspiracy theories exist. Some of them are real, of course. Some of them are proven to be true, like what we did in America to the Tuskegee Airmen. Mm. That was that was a that was the thing. You're like they're killing those fighter pilots up there, and you're like, no, that's not. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, well, you did. We gave them syphilis and watched them die. That was bad. So like when so then when that thing happens. When that horrific thing is unveiled, then it gives credence to other mm. conspiracy theories, right? And that's the thing, is yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. always the problem, is because then there's no evidence, and you go, "What? Well, there was no evidence of this, and no evidence becomes right, evidence." Exactly. And that's what this is. But so there's no evidence of this other than the graffiti, other yes. than because at the end we see the painting of Helen, and now that becomes that becomes story, and it all ties back to the artist. It all comes back to, you know, like. We have photographic evidence of things, but now we're at this point, like we've gone from the point where a, a picture mattered, like photographic evidence mm-hmm. was a thing, to now anybody AI. can doctor any picture ever. So we've gone the other way. So it's kind of like, might as well just start getting our portraits painted again because yeah. it's all bullshit, right? You know, I can, yeah. I too can look pretty sweet in my portrait. Like you see those portraits of uh, Churchill. Then you see yeah, the pictures of Churchill, you're like, hmm. Well, there's that, there's that, like, any, yeah, well, any, any, any royal when you sort of yeah, go, yeah. well, that's a, that's a very flattering picture. That's um, a choice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And so, so, but it is, it, but that's the idea because it all ties back to the graffiti and the thing that exists. Like the, the graffiti is, is, it seems that it's forever, but people just cover over it. It gets well, painted over it. Yeah. It, well, it it's layers. all a story. This is the thing. So yeah. this is the one thing I want to say about the graffiti, because um, this is important about art. I, art. Art is the connecting tissue with all of this. Art and yes. story. Creativity. And I think what you can do is you can trace this back. This idea of graffiti goes back to, like, the Stone Age. Like, this is the cave paintings in France, those this is the cave paintings that people have done. This idea of things lasting and telling stories, like we see stick figures, you know, killing a mammoth, like that's right. that's a story being told, like that's someone's recollection of an event. But like you know, that's that's there, that's remained. And this idea of graffiti, um, graffiti tells two stories in my mind. I always, whenever I see graffiti, there are two things: there's the creative impulse to do it. And just doing a signature that just sort of says, you know, Chris is a knob. Then you're just like, yeah. well, that's not really a creative impulse. That's just you being just... a dick. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's just <laughs> yeah, yeah. rubbish. But when you see these like amazing sort of like you know graffiti style paintings or the big block letters, or the banksy or stuff. Yeah, the ba- yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that's awesome. I love that. That's real art. And then you find it's like four stories up on the side of a factory, and you're like, dude, I want to know how that got there. <laughs> Always, I yeah. know. 
Yeah, it is. Well, and it's funny too that you say this, like, because I am a believer, like, of all the things that nobody's seen that people that I believe in, like the mm-hmm. conspiracy theory I believe in is dragons. Right. Because of cave paintings. And here's why. There were no phones, there was no internet, there was no letters being sent around, but in South America and in Africa and in Asia and in Europe and in North America, you will find a cave painting that has fucking dragons on the wall. So I'm sorry, people wrote down, people drew what they saw and everybody saw them. And it would make sense that the remaining, the dinosaurs that survived were pterodactyls and that they've just devolved and they're birds. Mm. Okay, but I, I... at some point in time, they all saw the same thing and they all drew it. And so that's why Matthew McConaughey shows up in Wales that time and kills the dragons. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, and he was dressed great, like great you. Rain you of, were yeah, very yeah. much got Rain, your, your Rain sporting of fire. Yeah, Rain of fire. Massively underrated. I love that film. But you know what I'm saying? So like to yeah, me, yeah. that's the thing. And so it's that belief. Like I, I, I mean it sincerely, like pass the lie detector. I believe that at one point in time, there were dragons. It only makes sense to me because all these people were writing down the same thing. Like, but and again, Penny, Pennywise is also real. Pennywise oh, is real. Yeah. I think all these ideas, this is the thing about ideas, isn't it? I, yeah. I, I love this word. Like, the idea, this idea of hyperstition, of, of manifesting something just through will of belief. Yeah. Um, is incredible. And they've yeah. shown that they've shown this is true. I mean, if we go back to, this is obviously, you know, Candyman. You've heard, I don't know if you've, have you ever heard of the Philip experiment? No. Okay, so quick side note, and then we'll get on to the third film. We'll yeah, some yeah. Of the bits. But the Philip experiment was in the 1970s, 1974, three, four, something like that. Anyway, it was in a university in Canada. And what they did is they said that, like, you know, ghosts aren't ghosts. They are a manifestation of our belief. Maybe telekinesis, maybe this, maybe that. So they did an experiment where they tried to create a ghost. They gave it a full biography. So an origin called story. Philip. Most, yeah, called Philip. He was a, um, I forget what the full biography was, but he was basically sort of like a Tudor or a Victorian or whatever. Full biography, okay? And they read about it. They talked about him. They told stories about him. They were trying to create this idea that he was real. Anyway, it didn't work for the first 12 months because they did it under laboratory conditions. So then they transitioned and started to use spiritual conditions. They started to use a Ouija board. They used seances. And And all of a sudden, something talked back. And this thing talked back, said, yes, I am Philip. It told these stories. It responded to questions that they sort of knew, you know, sort of at first that they knew the answer to because it was part of the biography. But then it started to expand and they introduced introduced things of its own biography. And there's lots of sort of like interesting things around this. There's um, from a parapsychological point of view, there's people that, oh, it was a manifestation. It was a hyperstition. An egregore is the sort of the uh, magical term for them. Others are like, actually, no, it was a demon or ghost that already existed and just took on the mantle of this and that. But there's this idea that those people in this group, these nine people that did this, fully believed in Philip. And so Philip existed. Manifestation. And it's the same thing. It is. What's like with anything that we tell our kids? Like, if it's, kids believe in Santa and they will, they believe because you mm. tell them and they see them and they, and they hear him. Yeah. Yeah, and kids are scared of ghosts under the bed because they're there. Yeah, no, I get it. I hear you. I think that's awesome. I'm going to totally look into the Philip experiment, yeah, which, is, which is a less brutal experience than the Stanford prison experiment. Yes. There's worse. What they did on college campuses in the 70s, for God's sake. Yeah, God, yeah, yeah. to have been born at the time. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so, so the thing is that this film, I think the, the, this film is what I love the Candyman. I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of it, and I'm glad we talked about it. 
But the sequel, I want to quickly just touch on the foot. So there's a sequel oh, yeah, yeah. called Farewell to the Flesh, which is set in New Orleans. And it actually starts with Purcell, the guy we've met in this film. And he's now writing a book about Helen and Trevor. So he's writing a book about the Candyman in Chicago and Cabrini Green. And when he's in a bathroom, someone calls upon the Candyman and he gets killed. The, the, the whole opening of the film is actually really good. Like the mm. opening of the book, the film is really good. It goes off the rails a little bit after that. I still kind of like it, but it goes off the rails. But then what you find out is that the, the Candyman, this person, he tracks down the original story of this black artist that fell in love with a white woman and so on and so forth. And he, finds, it this, okay. he finds it's this guy called Daniel Robitaille. And then he finds out that Daniel Robitaille had had children with this woman. Um, they do acknowledge that, that she yes, got pregnant. She yeah, got pregnant. Right. And so the descendant of Daniel Robitaille is the main character of the second book. And gotcha. it's all, it's all about going back, and it's sort of it's like it's in it's set in Louisiana. It, it sort of explores about this idea of plantations and slave ownership yeah. and generation. No, not not awfully. Like it acknowledges sort of like you're still connected, kind of thing. Like you know this thing, this this history exists, but it most definitely makes it a ghost story. Like the Candyman of of two is not a story entity. It is a ghost of Daniel Robitaille, like without a doubt. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and so it's a, it's a good ghost story, but it's not a great. It doesn't follow on from Candyman. Sure. Anyway, so let's jump to twenty twenty one. Okay. Yeah. Like and, I said, I don't remember anything about that, but yeah. I, I mean, I look. I'm looking at the Farewell of the Flesh, and I was like, oh, I've seen. I recognize a few of those scenes, but yeah, I I'm glad I I'm glad that we didn't redo them all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to skip to twenty one. So I watched them back to back, as you suggested, mm. and I and I went back and forth on whether or not to. Because we were doing this, of course, I was going to re-watch it. I'm glad I had not watched 2021 before this. I'm disappointed in myself because it was great. And what mm. I would have done, so these are two incredibly different films. But when Train Spotting Two came out, I deliberately didn't rewatch Train Spotting. Mm. I it had been years, and I went into it, and the, because that Train Spotting Two is about their false memories and about what they think they know, and like, um, you know, th what their you know, Renton and, and um, the way that they remember him and the way that he remembers them and he and Sick Boy's relationship and like their kind of bullshitty memory and the way mm. that they shot it with like some cuts from the original film, but like sort of out of order, out of focus. It made me love that second movie so much because I was feeling that with them. Like I didn't watch it and then go see it. So I wish I had done that with Candyman 2021. I think but watching it the way that you recommended, which was just back to back, back to back days, is fucking amazing. Mm. I loved it. I was shocked at how good I heard bad things about it. I knew Jordan wrote it. Um, I was like, I'm going to watch whatever he does. It was just one of those things I just didn't get to. But I thought this Nia DaCosta directed. Nia DaCosta, yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. The cast is exceptional. Yeah. So I was really thrilled. Um, I was just really thrilled. <laughs> I yeah. really liked it. I love this film. I absolutely, I think this is a really solid film. Like, there's people that yeah. moan about it. I think it, it hit. What are they pissed about? So, that it's so good. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, there's no, no artist that looks like him. That's my only complaint. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, I think, I think the thing was, this came out 2021. This was during the Black Lives Matter, um, the height of the Black Lives, sure. Lives Matter thing. This is, this, this ends up being about police brutality, but there of is course. also, um, this idea throughout this about sort of like the the idea of race in this and gentrification, 
um, is very much there. And I think it just hit a sore point where they were just like, mm. oh, if if this was come out now, this would be oh, another woke movie. But you're like, it is a woke movie. But it, is, it is, yeah, but in the right way. Right, right. The way that the word means, like, I'm happy. I'm thinking about, you know, because I live in Florida. I'm thinking about just getting a shirt that says woke and just wearing it around. Because you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. The yeah. point of woke is that I learned something new. Are you yeah, happy exactly. being ignorant, you dumb fucks? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this film challenges some ideas, but it, it, uh, but, but also it's very, not cliched, it's, it's sort of, it's, it fits within tropes. But I think it does yeah. it really well. And it continues this idea of art. As we've said, like, you know, the graffiti and this idea of what is art and, and how art speaks to us. Um, and it calls out artists. I love the fact there's a critic who's like, and she calls oh. out the artists, and that's kind of interesting. But this this point of th- this obviously comes into class again. Like, let you know, we've still got class. But one of the things I wanted to point out very early in this film, very beginning of this film, right? Comparing it to the Candyman, well, I think it's a stylistic choice, but I think it comes to two things, right? So the opening of Candyman. Um, with the amazing Philip Glass score. Oh, we didn't even talk about that score. Yeah, that good score's amazing. Lord. Gives, gives me tingles, that score does. He's it's... so good. I mean, he's good in general. I mean, he's yeah. great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good Lord, that was, like... It's it's iconic to me. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but the opening of the film is, is, a, is a sort of a bird's eye view down on these highways, and you sort of follow this road... And it comes, you're basically entering, sort of, you said, like, you know, eight blocks and you end up in Cabrini yeah. Green, like, but which to me is this representation of what Helen is. She's this sort of like, she's an academic coming in, looking down in an almost an academic way, right? Yeah. That's how the film opens. Candyman 2021 opens looking up. So the playing whole, the Sammy Davis Jr. Candyman song. Can, can, playing Amazing. the Candyman song, yeah. But the whole opening of the film is the credits coming up. It travels through the city with these with these uh, skyscrapers, these huge buildings disappearing in, into cloud. But it's still looking up. And I was like, that's the artist's view. Right. This isn't the, you know, the, the academics. This one of like, you know, an, an analysis looking down. But the, the artist is looking up, looking at the world and trying to find. I was like, that's where this is sort of trying to meet that. The original, and that's why I love this film because it's such a continuation. It's it's this is how I do a legacy sequel to me. Oh my god, Th- seriously! And again, I know people are tired of all of the requels or like whatever, mm. but I mean, to me, here's what a legacy sequel. You have some of the um, uh, Vanessa Williams comes mm-hmm. back around because mm-hmm. you've mm-hmm. already spoiled. We spoiled the shit out of it, so she's back as the mom. She is. Um, Anthony is the baby, and again. Yeah. Anthony and Clive show up. We've got a Tony. We've got a we've got a Clive. That was lovely. I appreciated that with their names. Um, yeah, and and I think what you do is a, a, the reason a good legacy sequel says the original story it was real. Yes. Everything you saw was real. You may again, like I said, with Train Spotting too. I liked that one a lot because it was like it was a little hazy and 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 you know as jack girl says in the new tank girl memory is a is an ugly bullshitty thing um it was though the three of them she, T- tank girl sub girl and jet girl are sitting around a fire and and, and booga asks them because they're still making tank girl everybody mm. tank girl it's not titan comics um booga asks them how they met like he's like it's weird i've never asked you guys how you met before and so they all start telling their own versions and just insane just ridiculous then we get to jet girl she just says yeah memory is an ugly bullshitty thing and so she doesn't even give her version because she yeah. doesn't care she's like these are it's tub girl it's nonsense tub girl and tank girl i mean i don't know yeah. life without them so it's just a funny but so uh, this this is that this does that thing 
where it's like playing with you. And I think, I think you're right. Like a legacy sequel is supposed to say the first thing was real. It's not a reboot. We're not, we're not being cheeky. I mean, the mm-hmm. cheeky thing is naming them Anthony and Clive. The rest is real. Like they use Virginia Madsen's voice. They, you know, like she, Helen is the character. Trevor is a character. You know, uh, Vanessa Williams, uh, the mom, and Marie, she's a character. So we're like not fucking around. No. And it's so good. It's so smart. And it loves the first film. And this, to me, makes the first film even better. Like, I like the first film. This film is excellent. Probably because, you know, again, it's shot a little bit better. And, you know, different different things, different skill sets, mm. different budget. But it makes the fir- it makes the first film, watching it together, because they're only... 90 minutes each. And so, you mm. know, in the way that movies are now all three hours, like at yeah. Scorsese, these, you Scorsese, you can just go ahead and play this as one film. And it's right. these, shorter these, than a Scorsese uh, yeah. movie. Together, they're, they're one superhero film. So, you know. Right. So, <laughs> and they, it is a superhero story. It is yeah. such a great story. And it is myth. It's mythic and it's epic. I'm so impressed by this film. The, I'm yeah. so impressed. Oh, I love it. And I think, you know, the things to me, the reason I love this film and I think why it makes the first film better and I completely agree that this makes me is because this holds, not only does it say that the first one was real and it happened but it expands on the idea of what Candyman is and this idea of um, generational storytelling so, because the Candyman in this isn't Tony Todd No, he appears later on it's a guy from the 70s who was accused of being a child murderer or a ch- he yeah. was just a nice guy who was yeah, but probably yeah. Yeah, probably a little a little um, touched touched. So yeah, you know, probably had learning difficulties, whatever. But was literally just handing out sweets to kids. Yeah, but, he was just a nice, simple guy. Yeah. yeah, but some children got killed because of a razor blade, which is again razor blading candy is the Halloween myth. You know, yeah, all that as part of your you covered that on your yeah sa- uh, satanic panic episode. We did, yeah, yeah. Um, and so you know, you have that there, but. He then gets accused of it. He is killed and beaten to death by the police. So this Ugh. is why this that's why this sort of touched on, I think, touched sure. on things for people. Um, and then the the but the myth then on the estate, Cabrini Green in the 70s isn't the Tony Todd version. So they exist still because but for this one guy who's telling the story, who he meets at the laundromat, for yeah. him, Candyman looks like this guy from the 70s. Right. And He's so got his coat slightly different. Yeah, exactly. It's still a long coat. Still a long coat. Still a guy. Yeah, there's still a guy. There's still a hook for hand. So the version that Anthony sees throughout the film is the seventies version because he's not yeah. been told the Daniel Robitaille story, the the eighteen eighty five story. He knows the nineteen seventy story. So again, it comes to this idea, and then as the film grows, you find that there's more that there have been these people that have been killed time and these, these these black people have been killed like it's been a child that was uh or there was someone that moved in and then got lynched or dragged on the back of a truck each one is Candyman because to, to those people it's this idea of of, of uh sorrow and rage and violence and all this other and stuff just this, and injustice and revenge yeah this thing this 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 emotion has stained this area and is manifested as Candyman, but materializes as differently to each people because of the story they hear. And then this story, again, much like with Helen, I'm I'm kind of glad that they didn't bring back Helen in a Virginia, way. Like, just her voice. Yeah. Yeah, they bring yeah, but not as a sort of a you know a new yeah, manifestation. I agree. Um it wouldn't have worked with the story they were telling. No. Because um, you just taught it's actually so it's like 
generational trauma is a thing. Like that is a real stuff. Like mm. that, there are studies that prove that. that like, yes. And so this actually, uh, there's a guy uh, from the University of Virginia. He, he's no longer with us, but his Dr. Ian Stevenson was his name. And he did site research. This is all real legitimate research on children remembering their past lives. And his mm. argument is, and he, he could prove scientifically, he wasn't trying to prove reincarnation, but his argument was when, the, when a six-year-old would have memories or a three-year-old or a one-year-old would have memories of a violent death. Those children almost always manifested a scar on their body that corresponded to the way that they died. Wow. And the scar existed before they could talk. So like one was like a kid who, when he got older, remembered being shot through the mouth Mm. and he had a big birthmark on the back of his head. That was like, one was like, you know, a scar on a leg, all these different things like this idea. And so he was really kind of, you know, like discussing how the idea of, is it reincarnation? Is it generational trauma? Is it the same thing? And it's an interesting, and the University of Virginia funded this for years. Some, the Institute still exists. People have carried on his, his research. It's fascinating. And so to me, but, but we all know generational trauma is real. We know that if you're scared of something yes. and regards, and it's not, it doesn't, and it's not necessarily even genetics. It can be, it can be that your mom was, your mom liked a certain food. You liked a certain food. Your mom Hmm. didn't like it when she was pregnant, but it can also be a nature versus nurture thing. Adopted kids, foster kids, they inherit this generational trauma just because it's like there. If your parents are scared of something, you're probably going to be scared of it too. And then that's just instinct. Then when you have your kids, even before they can speak, before they can, they can feel your tension and it moves down. So there's a whole shockingly there's a whole generation of young black men who are afraid of the police in Chicago. Go yeah. figure. Go Shocking. figure. Yeah, so you yeah. know that, that right. So it's in, in and all in, from the same area. And that's what makes Anthony stand out is because he's not. No, he is. He, he is. But he isn't because there's this whole conversation that he when he finds out that he's the baby, he's like, no, no, I'm from the south side. Which is a different, which has its own different trauma. But when we meet his mom, she's not in that part of the South Side. The South Side mm. of Chicago is is not the best part of town. But there's definitely really nice, you know, regular middle class, mm. class neighborhoods on the South Side. That's clearly where Anne Marie ends up. You know, when we see the yes, inside of a house. Yeah, yeah we, we yeah. don't know that at the time. Because we meet Anthony, he's like a working artist. You don't become a working artist if you didn't have parents who could take care. You know, I mean, that's, yeah, exactly. a, that's another thing. So he's broken the generational trauma. But then once he's re- when it comes back, it manifests on him again. And that's, it's there, it's in his bones, literally. It's so good. Well, yeah, and it is, uh, yes, I, I love the fact it touches on that that manifestation of, of, of say, of generational trauma. And that's why I love, I love this film, because it's a legacy sequel. Like, it literally has been 30 years. Like, this, right. isn't, this hasn't been, you know, they haven't gone, oh, we're going to jump forward. No, no, this has been, th- you know, 30 years for them to yeah, make the film. Yeah, the actor, right, Tony Todd and Vanessa Williams show back up, and yeah. they are Tony Todd and Vanessa Williams. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I like that thing. I also like say for the you talk about this evil, like wherever it is, the bees obviously you know a, a return, and the, the this sort of he is chosen, he, or he's recognized. This, I, I like this idea. The, for me, he is recognized. He jumps the fence, and in jumping that fence, um, he's taking photographs. Like he's re- he's doing some research for a new art. Uh, exhibition. So he's looking at Chicago and he enters Cabrini Green. Like he jumps over a fence. It's all locked in. And the, he starts taking photographs whilst he's over this fence. And he gets stung by a bee on his on his hand. And that is and like an identification. Like that's the starting point. Like that's it. Like you know that marks him out. Like that's it. 
you are to be. But it's almost like the land recognized him. It knew yeah. him. Oh, you've come home. Time to complete the story. Like the story can continue. And if he uh, didn't go, it doesn't happen. No, 100%. Yeah. yeah. And and it all starts with his brother-in-law played beautifully by Nathan Stewart Jarrett. He's spectacular. He's so funny. Mm. The way that, I mean, because again, as we've discussed how big um, Mateen II is, yeah. uh, he's a he's a giant, <laughs> giant of a man. He is. And, uh, and Nathan Stewart Jarrett is not at all. And he's he like, you know, he's like playing it over the top, like can't be gay is, you know, effeminate gay. And he's yeah. like, I'm going to kick his ass. He's like, yeah. And his yeah. boyfriend's like, I guess I'll stomp if I have to. And he's like, <laughs> his small, tiny Jewish boyfriend is like, I don't really... He beat us both up just yeah. for fun. Like it was just such a funny, but again, because of the way that they, the story is told again, like it's a ghost story yeah. and Troy turns out all the lights and he's going to do all this stuff. And that is, again, it's just the interest, just enough. He's looking for inspiration. Anthony's looking for inspiration. He needs something. And so the story ignites in him. And if he ignores it and it's like, nah, I'm going to do something else. Yeah. But because like you said, the story, the stories live, stories inspire us, stories make us do fiction. And what I love about this is, well, this is negative. This isn't great. You don't go, don't become a hook wielding serial killer, folks. But story <laughs> matters. Art matters. We believe that. Like it's, yeah, what yeah. We do. it's what we do for fun. We tell stories. We write stories. We engage with stories. We, we pass them on to our children. Because how you, you can be inspired by fiction. You can be, and that's his whole thing, like this idea of art. He's he's painting portraits, which again goes back to the original story, right? The yep. original story. He was a portrait artist. He's painting portraits of him. And what he does through this weird dissociation, you don't realize what he's doing at first until it all comes clear, which you've explained. It's all these different men. You don't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. He's painting all these portraits of people. He's not he's taking all these pictures. He's not painting any of that. No, he's not. Yeah, he, he he's was going to be doing like yeah, he's he, seeing these images. Yeah, he thought he was going to do like a cityscape of yeah. Cabrini Green, but instead he's painting these pictures. He's like compelled to tell their story, to, to pay it forward, and to like inspire or warn or whatever. And so it's an fiction, nonfiction, whatever. This movie is so good because it because of when it was. That's why I am disappointed I didn't see it when it came out because I would have loved it even more. I mean, everything Jordan Peele does is timely, dude. Mm. Can't wait for the Jordan Peele retrospective in 30 years. And everybody's like, Hitchcock, who? Jordan fucking Peele. Let yeah, me tell you dude, all about dude it. His, dude does his finger on the pulse. Oh, but that he did. See, and that's yeah. just it. Where, where, you know, so did Hitchcock, but he also had his finger on the pulse of really attractive blonde ladies. Where yes. Jordan Peele's like, <laughs> I'm just going to tell really scary fucking stories that are relevant. social Because he understands horror yes. is social commentary. Oh, 100%. And, yeah. This is so good, and it everything is true. And I love that the 1970s story. I hate I hate that it happened to that to that Candyman, but like because he was beaten to death by the police in 1977, it just that it, that is what continues to happen to these to these mm. black men to these black bodies just trying to live in space. Like you're put in this space, Cabrini Green. We're putting you here. Yeah, we've shoved you in you, this space. You're ghettoized. Yeah, but we're still going to come and beat your ass. Yeah, you're in your own space. Well, that opening scene, what's what's oh, so that you, you get the flashback of how the touch on this of how the yeah. Candyman you see in this is killed, and you see the young it's a younger version of this guy who uh, works at this laundromat, and it's sort of his story from when he was a kid, and he goes down to do the laundry, you know. So yeah. I love the fact they continue that, that he owns his laundromat, but he was yeah. Yeah, he, yeah. he was doing the laundry when it happened. So that, you know, yeah. they, there's all these nice connections, 
And this guy came, literally comes out of a hole in the wall, offers him yeah. a sweet, and he's just like, he's not wholly scared of him. He's just like, Jesus Christ, it makes him jump. But he still takes the sweet. Yeah. And, but because he's made a noise, and these they are looking for this individual, um, you've only seen two police officers. You've seen a car, and they're a bit like, Ugh, have you seen this guy kind of thing? Yeah. Is interested. The moment they hear this scream, like, Cops out of nowhere appear and just flood down this staircase, and all you know, knock almost knock this kid out of the way. Like they grab him and drag him out of the way, and he drops the suite. And all you just hear is like, "Yeah, they beat him to death." That right there and then, brutal. Yeah, right there in the in the laundry. Yeah, but they were just waiting for this moment, and it is brutal. Um, so yeah, but it's it's a story, like you say. He then leaves, and then you know you see flashes of it happening. You know this Candyman then kills again, and is sort of or the Candyman, the entity kills again, but is seen as this person. Yeah, Um, and obviously that's when as it infects um, Anthony, and he sees himself like the scene where he sees himself in a mirror, and he's reflected, and he sees the seventies version back in when he's at the uh, the art critics, which is a great scene. so good, but it all sort of culminates like this is the thing, like you said. I love the fact that it manifests through the art. He is telling, and I wanted to talk on this thing about the art. Yeah. The other thing I love about this film is before it was released, before this film was released, they released a short and it's available on the Blu ray. I'm not even on the DVD, but it's the they use stick figures for like shadow puppetry, shadow puppets. They're through, and that's at the end of the movie, yeah, over the that, credits, that, over the credits. And that was released as a short on its own. Oh, that's amazing, and it's on YouTube as that. well. And you oh, can watch okay. it, and it has the, the music in this is great as well. I love the music as well in this. I think it's a great score. Um, I'm not sure who does it, but uh, it works. But this idea of sort of like it shows these sort of shadow puppets telling the different stories, and you get like Daniel Robitaille, and then you get all these different sort of people. You get like a little boy, and everyone's on a mo- on a bike, and everyone's like pointing bike, yeah. at him. Everyone points at him for some reason, and he gets. And then there's another, and he gets lynched, and there's another one. He just moves into a house. And then mm-hmm. he gets put like dragged on the back of a truck. Um, there's another one that wouldn't pay. That, um, he was charged triple, so he sort of decided to leave. And he gets an axe in his back, and there's all these stories, and they sort of like they culminate. And you see, seventies Candyman, in, and then in you see, form, and then, and you then, you then see it Anthony. ends yeah. with Anthony. So good. It's, it's so so good, but it shows this sort of like you say this this is going to keep happening. And he's like you say, near the Costa and Jordan Peele are telling this story of. Generational trauma through, you know, fear of the police and all sort of stuff, the, the black perspective, which is really interesting, really cool. But from a story, just the Candyman idea of this idea of this being, this entity is just exists on this estate um, and it's a piece of land and keeps manifesting in the, the identity of whatever the story is that these things were, te- you know, the, the people will continue to tell stories. And as long as they do, this thing will exist. I mean, to me, this is almost like a Constantine story. The fact the first one's set in mm. the, the, the novel set in, or the book set in Liverpool, I was like, oh, this is such a Constantine story. Like, Constantine. No, you're right. It actually, well, like the way Joanna and John. Yeah. That is a great point. Oh, yeah. nice. Those, yeah, 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 I love that. John, John Constantine versus Candyman. That would work. Like, I'm I'm in. I'm on that. Right that yeah. happen. Make that, manifest that into the universe. Alan I will. Probably put be it, like, I'm all there. for it. I'm yeah, putting yeah. it out there. Um, um but yeah, it's just where a time so we sort of get to the end. But like, yeah. So, I, any so any good. thoughts? I, my final well, uh, two things, two final thoughts. Number one, both movies are ninety minutes. People, that yeah. is, and they they cut it to the bone, but they are so 
fucking amazing. Like so, <laughs> like nine, like a ninety-minute thriller. They're both horror movies. They're bloody and stuff, but they're not like jump scare horror movies. This the fear is as you've been saying is in. So I appreciate their brevity and they didn't. They knew what to cut. They knew how to tell a story. They got in and they got out. Um, that that goes back to Clive Barker's ability to write short stories, right? And mm-hmm. that idea that a short story and this is what this whole series that we're doing is short stories to film and that, you know, nobody wants to turn a short story into a seven hour movie, right? We don't need that. But this one short story inspired a movie, which inspired a legacy. And I just think it's, I just think, so that's number one. I think it's just so well told. It's so tightly done. Um, I I just, it's, it's magnificent. Number two, and this is Tony Todd should have been a way bigger star. Yes. And he, I mean, in certain circles, he is, there's a picture, I've seen it, of our friend Tanya Todd, met Tony Todd at a convention Mm. lunch, which is super cool. And I think she should just say forever, this is my Mm. uncle. (laughs) Um, Same name. Um, But I would. He and I have the same first name, and I cannot go around and say it. But, and he did the voice of Zoom on the Flash TV show, which is great, like the Grant Gustin Flash. So, I mean, there's like, Tony, of course, you need a dark, scary evil speedster what's tony todd doing like i'm sure everybody on that show was freaked i don't know if he was on set or if he adr'd it but whatever i would just say i worked with tony todd but what i want to know and you are the you are research why isn't he a bigger what happened is it because he was just a black man in 1990s yeah no i mean he did some track and stuff but he just wasn't the star that i think he should be he's in crow obviously but just not he did in in the early 90s like he did a number of things like you know um i think it's the fact he got very quickly associated well first well first he got very quickly associated with he became iconic as Candyman. Uh-huh. you know to the extent of like the mcfarland toy range even has like you know, the, the horror icon there's a great Candyman figure um but uh, i think that it was a case of like he he's one of these that sort of he's he's a, he's a hard fit for a, he's not a lead man like he's not a denzel no no, no. right yeah so he's not like a lead man. Um, but there was no real sort of like the films of the nineties didn't really fit him, which I think is the problem. Like he finds things, like he's in the rock. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, he turns up as death as a sort of as a, the undertaker or the mortician in the final fantasy, final, final, which is final per- destination film. Which is perfect. Yeah. yeah. Um and so he has But he's, he's just a cameo. Like he he's playing that he's Tony Todd in that. Yeah. But I don't know, he just sort of He's one of these that sort of he's he crops up in films throughout the nineties, but he never got like the big break. I feel like he got Steve James, and I just want to. Mm. And I know, listen, Tony Todd and Steve James. Nobody has charisma like Steve James. I'm not trying to say Steve James. Hallowed be thy name. He never, he never got the like I. So, but I feel like it's that same thing that held them back. They're totally different types of actors. Like Steve James had charisma for miles. He was a leading man. Like if people don't know who Steve James is, go go watch the first American Ninja. And you're like, oh, the guy you can't take your eyes off of is not the lead of the film. It's fucking Steve James. His 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 turn in I'm going to get you sucker. He's great in that. He's just spectacular. I love Steve James. Gone too soon. He was such a legend. But I feel like he's also just a bl- good looking black man at the wrong time. And is that just what happened? Like, but he yeah. was before Tony Todd's time, and it's like, and it d- d- did Tony Todd crawl so Sam Jackson could walk? Is that what happened? Um, no, well, no, because I think I think I would say in the so if you look at the early nineties, right, or the late eighties, early nineties, 
it's a you know Hollywood's um and I'm probably not the best one to use, but Hollywood's sort of like black um Rolodex is kind of thin. It is very thin. All right. You've got Eddie Murphy, Denzel sort of coming through. But even um, in virtuosity, they wouldn't let him and Kelly Lynch kiss. They cut the scene. Yep, exactly. Like there's still, you know, a lot of like, yeah, those late early eighties, sorry, late eighties, early nineties, um, you get sort of like even like say um Die Hard, you know, you get mm. uh, Al Powell, sort of like you get sidekicks and you get sub, you know, supporting characters. Um which is why, funnily enough, like the idea of Spawn, of a, a comic about a black, um, you know, superhero in a black family, and yeah. stuff, was it was like, oh my god, this is unusual. Yeah, in ninety two, um, it just wasn't there. Like you had yeah. to be the, you had to be a big star. Like don't forget, Denzel didn't. Become, like, Morgan Freeman didn't was was the same. Like Morgan Freeman came along, did you know, Driving Miss Daisy, Prince of uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. There was side characters. There were never. You know, Shawshank Redemption is really what made Morgan Freeman, but he was never a leading man. Like there was never right. those roles. Wesley Snipes. The only reason Wesley Snipes really got, and it was because he was like, oh, oh, he's the black action star. Cool, he can do martial arts. Like, he was, that was. He he soared. Steve. He was. He climbed off Steve James' back. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Um, and I'm so, sure yeah. he would admit that. I'm sure. Oh, he yeah, would he say, would. Without Steve James, there's no me. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's also I forget whose name is but there's the, the Black Marshalist from the seventies as well, sort of uh, with Bruce Lee, uh, Kelly, uh, whose name escapes at the moment. So there's always been those. They'll they acknowledge them, but they don't. Yeah. Climb. Mm. It's not. It's not until the mid to late nineties that it really takes off. Like with Will Smith, Denzel comes through a lot stronger. Uh, Eddie Murphy, still, you know, still killing it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's not really until then that it sort of it, you just it, said the you know, right. And again, I get it. He's got he's definitely a great horror presence. He's creepy. Mm. He's big, but it's just like I don't know. I just feel like his presence is so good. It's not like he's a bad actor. His voice, no, he's good. Voice voice acting is really hard, and he's a really good voice he actor. Is. Like you said, his iconic voice shows up in things, and you're like, well, that's Tony Todd. It's just I just. You know, so for me, I was just like, I every time I watch a movie, like these, I mean, he's barely in the second one, but like he's so good in the first one. He's such a presence and he plays off Virginia Madsen, who's also a very good Oscar nominated mm. actor in her own right. Like she's very good. And so they play off each other really well. And the, and I think the tension between them at the end of the first Candyman, that doesn't happen if they are, if they, if he's not a good actor, if they're yeah. not oh, charisma, they are, you know. So I just, I'm, every time I see him, I'm, and I, I'm so glad he shows up at the very end. At the very, very end, because you heard his voice peeking through a little, and then at the end, he manifests as Tony Todd of like, so "Oh, that's thank the you. bit." Yeah, that's the bit I wanted to say. So there's the so that's be my final thought, and I yeah. love twist. So the end of the film is uh, the end of the film is is Anthony gets killed by police, like literally kicking the door and shooting. But he's been turned into Candyman. Um, he's been poisoned. He's got this new look, like he's pocked and marked by this honeycomb effect, which is awesome because bees oh. then crawl out of it. But he's then given the coat, like they cut off his arm and they give him the overcoat. Like I love yeah. the fact that the overcoat is a part of the myth. Right. Um, and the hook hand. And then he comes back from the dead and takes on these police officers because his wife she calls him. Calls yeah. him. And um, it's great. It's a, it's a fantastic scene. But then when he leaves and his head's all covered in bees, like it's, you know, he's, he's this sort of like beehive, his face and his shoulder. But then when he turns the corner, you see him as the 70s one very, very briefly. But then Daniel Robitaille's Tony Todd's face comes through and he says, tell 
everyone what or tell people what you saw. So and that's the legend being born again. And that's it. That's the end. Um, and I and hope it, that, I mean, and again, I would love, I don't, I don't want there to be Candyman 2023. Like, I think if they're going to do it, wait another 20, 30 years, get, get, see who you can get back around, whatever. I, I, I'm here. If you want to do another legacy sequel in 20 years, I'm here for it. Yeah. And that's what I feel like they were setting up. And I don't know if Jordan bought the rights to the story and that's why he did it. So it's like, he controls it now, you know, if, cause Braun studios who just went under is mm-hmm. also one of yeah. the produ- production companies on this. So I feel like monkey paw may own it now, which would be better. Yes. If Jordan has his hands on it. If he and Nia have it, then they're no, but it's not going to fall in the wrong hands. Cause you know what? I don't want a Candyman TV show. I don't no. want that. I don't want, I want, uh, this is a short. This, this yeah, right. films films feel like the short story. I don't want. I don't want a, a decompressed investigation. It's like it works as a film as a, as, as this sort of story form, and in ninety minutes, no more than that. Like it's a nice hour and a half kind of film. It tells a good short story, and, and that's it does. I really like it. And you know what? The other thing that is, I forgot I was going to say, like the three act, like Clive Barker writes in three act structure in his short mm. stories, which is hard to do in a short story, but he does it, and so it it translates perfectly because it's like even the first third of his stories you're like what the fuck is going on yeah i'm just kind of like you know you're like wandering around i'm setting the tone you're talking to these ladies what the fuck is happening and then shit gets real and then this it's like this short story was perfectly written to be adapted because he wrote the three-act structure and it's just there you just have to make the tweaks and so it's such an easy switch easy switch and that's why the three-act structure works three 30-minute acts yes and, you know, you know I, not all of his not all of his films, oh sorry, not all of his stories work. Um, oh no, no, way. not but, all of them but, should be made no. the film. But I get why some people of them keep too, trying. Yeah, some some of them are too. Like, you couldn't make all of Books of Blood. Some of them are too too weird. Um, but I would recommend if you've ever seen Rawhead Rex, which is the first ever Clive Barker uh, thing to be adapted. No. Clive Rawhead Rex, it's a weird sort of folk kind of monster tale. But they've made him look like a quite an anthropomorphic monster. But in the book, it's a he, Clive Barker describes it as a, a rage-filled penis um, fighting, uh, yeah, killing people across the countryside. And you're like, cool, Amazing. I'm in, I'm in. That's I'm told, <laughs> yeah. That's not, um, and then they were like, how do we film that? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. This was delightful, man. Thank you for awesome. thank you for picking this one. And I love this idea because we love stories, and we do, and short stories. I fin and again I reread Shirley Jackson's um I read Shirley Jackson's biography. So I read her entire short story collection, which is fucking epic. Mm. Um and she has this character, and I don't know if you know this, but to talk about story, she, I, I didn't realize this because I never read them all kind of in a row like this. Like I read the full collection, like the sh- short stories of Shirley Jackson. <clears throat> There's a recurring character. Oh wow, I did not know that. Yeah, James Harris. He's the devil. Ah, or is what maybe but he shows up in all these stories the same names and the first time i was like oh blah 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 harris and then in another story the guy's like what's your name he's like jim you're like son of a bitch there he is again like it's so good i had no idea that she did that and so like there was this theme and then reading Mm. the book reading that so i recognized it i even wrote down like James Harris. And I was like, okay, then I'm going to read her book. I'm going to read her biography next. And if it doesn't address it, it'll be a shitty biography. Cause how could you, how could you ignore this after I just read all these stories? Yeah. It, it addresses it directly. Cause I was going to look it up, but it's so cool that she did this intentionally. She built mythology within her own story. She created her own demon. 
that nice. that haunts her different stories. Disconnected stories, different times and places. He's different ages. He's he looks. Di- it's very again. Neil get, looks different to different people. Oh my god! But the same name, so cool. And that's why I love so this. Stuff. I love this. I'm going to check that out. I'm going to. Yeah. I need to read more Shirley Jackson. I really do. Oh, anyway, dude, we shall. She's so good. We shall yes. jump off there. But uh, uh, what's next? The next story is. Uh, it's we've done. Uh, yeah, Clive Barker. We've done. We're going to do some John Carpenter next. We're going to do. The they thing. live. And oh, we're doing eight, they live eight o'clock yes, in the morning. Eight o'clock oh. in the morning. So you've not uh, read eight o'clock in the morning. I have not. I so but, I have. So this is the opposite this time. Is I've read. So I read the short story. And you had. So we're, maybe that's just how it's going to work. Mm. It's interesting. And you know, like talk about a slow burn. That movie, the John Carpenter film, They Live, takes a long time to get going, but yeah. does have the greatest end to the second act in the history of film. We'll discuss. Yes. Oh yeah, it, it's and also Roddy Piper's in it, and right. I mean, that ten-minute wrestling scene at the end of the second act is exceptional. Like yes. John Carpenter saying, "Like I couldn't light anybody on fire in this movie, like I did in the thing. I don't have the budget, <laughs> but we're gonna do this instead." Him and Keith David. If you ever get a chance, if you while we watch it, watch behind the scenes because there is actually an old. They did that with, themselves. I was right? gonna say, yeah, there's yeah. a Roddy Piper and Keith David interview where they talk about it and how they basically sort of kept coming up with ways of kicking the crap out of each other. It's it is so good, and there's like no score to it. And you know, Carpenter, who's the scoriest score, he writes his own scores. Mm. I that so I can't wait to talk about that. Well, yes, that's exciting. We'll the next yeah, episode. This is fun. So we should leave it there. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Another great 20th century geek episode. Thank you for listening. If you would like to get in contact to suggest topics for future shows or just chat about everything nerdy, you can email me at 20thcenturygeek at gmail.com. That's 20thcenturygeek at gmail.com. Or find me on social media, Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just search for 20thcenturygeek. If you would like to support the show, please go on your podcast catcher and leave a five-star review. I would greatly appreciate it. It raises the show in the ranks and lets more people know about the podcast. If you want to show more support for the podcast, we do have an Amazon wish list. Just go on Amazon and search for 20th Century Geek and you will find a list of books that will help with research for future podcasts. And don't forget... We love second-hand books in 20th Century Towers. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.